0: Okay, today let's talk about I quit comparing. This one affects all of us. Now, we're talking about comparing, comparison. What are the odds there would be parents in the San Antonio area who would ever meet with the teacher and ask, "How's my kid doing?" And have the teacher say, "I'd say about average. Your kid's right in the middle of the pack." Then they go to the kid's soccer coach and they say, "How's my kid doing?" Ah, oh, your kid's about average. I'd say half or better, half or worse. Then they go to the kid's tutor who specializes in maybe prepping seven-year-olds for their SAT exam. <laughs> How's my kid doing? Oh, I think you can expect about the 50th percentile. What are the odds that a parent would respond to that saying, "Oh, that's great. I got a normal kid. My kid's average, right in the middle, the sweet spot of God's bell curve." Not a chance. Because when we ask the question, how's my kid doing, we add a little writer attached to it compared to the other kids. That's what we want to know. We've got a way of measuring our performance, our identity, our value, and our worth compared to other kids or for us compared to other people. When I was in first grade, we got assigned into reading groups based on how well we could read compared to the other kids. Now, they wouldn't tell you that. But if you had a mind to think, you could kind of get a, a grasp that something was going on here because the name for our groups were, were for birds. Groups like the eagles, the robins, and the pigeons. So if you were, this is surreal, If you were assigned to the pigeon group, you know you weren't tearing it up in reading class. And there's this weird thing. We have a way of identifying our worth and our performance and our value based on how we do compared with other people. Now, comparison by itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's an inevitable part of learning. That's how kids figure out. That box is bigger than that box, right? Or a cheetah runs faster than a turtle. Or I can get a better deal on jewelry for my wife's birthday from Dollar General than I can from Jared's. He went to Jared's. (laughs) <laughs> okay. We, want, we learn by comparing. But when I start to compare myself with another person, my ego gets involved. My ego wants me to be exalted over somebody else. My ego feels like I'm going to be diminished if another person gets lifted up. My ego starts to whisper to me about envy and jealousy and gets me competitive. And when I compare myself with other people, if I do better than somebody else, I feel superior, puffed up, and it kind of kills love in me. If I grade myself worse, then I feel inferior, unworthy, and that kills love in me. It's not even teachers or parents doing it to us so much anymore. We do it to ourselves, we make ourselves miserable. So I want to invite everybody watching online and here at Summit this morning, just to reflect a moment on yourself, to grade yourself, whether you ever do this. How about we just do a mass confession? I'll run through a few categories and see if you fit. If you've ever compared yourself to anybody else on the basis of looks, like she's cuter than me, or hair, or teeth, or physique, anything like that, or intelligence, or grades, GPA. If you've ever compared your career to somebody else's career, your house to somebody else's house, your car to somebody else's car, your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse to somebody else's, your kids, how you're doing as a parent, even your spiritual life, if you've ever, ever in any way compared yourself to anybody else, raise your hand real high right now. Woo! That's a sickness around here, isn't it? And how many of you might say, Yeah, I've done that, Rick, but I'm probably way better at it than most people. (laughs) It's really toxic, this thing of comparing, and it's in our culture big time, big time. We all want to know, am I in the eagles, the robins, or the pigeons? No, Sparky, you're in the turkeys. Get over there. No way. That actually goes way back in the Bible, all through the Bible. So what I want to do briefly is to walk through several scenes in the Bible And in life, and look at why comparing yourself to other people is such a miserable, toxic, anti-kingdom way to live. I don't care how hot you are, how buff you are, how strong you are, how fast you are. I'll guarantee you there's somebody better. Oh, yeah. Always somebody thinner, hairier, better, buffer. Whatever. I don't know. I wanted to go with a few others, but Cindy might not approve. Okay, I don't know. Okay, then I want to talk about how to get liberated from it, okay? This sin of comparing myself to other people is at the root of the second sin in the Bible. You know what the first sin is? That's Adam and Eve. They ate the forbidden fruit. The second sin involves a couple of brothers, Cain and Abel. And this is what we're told, all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of his land as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought an offering, fat portions for some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel, his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain became very angry, and his face was downcast. So the first thing we wonder when we read through this story is, why is Abel's offering looked upon with favor, and Cain's is not? Well, it goes back to that word firstborn. Abel offered some of the firstborn. This idea of firstfruits, firstborn, in some languages of the Hebrew, it's the tithe. God, way before the Mosaic law, took the first portion as a means of trusting him as the sovereign provider, and he asked Israel to give him the first portion of your crops, your grain. By the way, God says the firstborn is mine. How many of you in here are firstborn in your family? I am. Let me see. If I do a group of preachers, and I've done this with thousands, I said, how many of you are firstborn? Seventy-five percent will raise their hand. And God says, the firstborn is mine. You can run, but you can't hide. (laughs) And I did run, and I tried to hide. But he says, it's mine, saith the Lord. And that's the first portion of all that we have. God demands that we get it. Well, Abel brought it to him. Cain just said, I'm going to give you some stuff. But he didn't do it. So we talked about this a little bit back in past messages when we talked about giving and generosity and even tithing, that we don't offer our tithe, we bring our tithe to God because they belong to God. Now, if I borrowed your lawnmower and I used it to cut my grass and then I brought it back and I says, look, I am am giving you this lawnmower, you'd say, Rick, you ain't giving me anything. That's my lawnmower. You're merely returning what's mine. So when I give the tithe, I'm not—I am returning to the Lord what's His. I'm not actually giving till I give something above my tithe. Now I'm giving because I don't have to. It makes it okay. It's simple. So God loves it when we make giving generosity a priority. So He would teach His people to give not just some, but the first fruit of your harvest or the firstborn of the flock right off the top. The first thing I do is say, God, here's the tithe. It's yours, not mine. I want to make generosity a priority. And God promised to rebuke the devourer, provide for your need, et cetera, when you you obey him. So Abel does that. Cain does not do it. He just brings some. I'll give you a little tip. The implication is he's doing it out of obligation, kind of grudgingly, uh, not because he wants to, but because he thinks he has to. Abel experiences what generosity does in a heart. He trusts God, he loves God, and he's living in the reality of God's favor and dependence on God. And God loves that. God loves generosity. By the way, if you took a little test and asked your spouse, would you say I'm generous? Or ask your kids. You, you might, if anybody has to pause to give an answer, you already got the answer. No, you're stingy or you're greedy are you you're, you're a hoarder you're afraid you know I thought that's a terrible thing generosity is one of the main characteristics of Christianity even with pagans they help them they share with them they give what they have it's part of God's nature in DNA Generous. it's not about how much you have it's just generous with what you do have that's a good question to ask old self old self are you a generous person? If you serve on a board, if you serve uh, somebody that you're supervising or something, are you generous or stingy? Yeah, that reveals a lot. Well, I don't think they need that. No not matter what you think. Did they deserve it? You know, your, your compensation is based on value added. The more value you add, then the more honor you should receive. It's as simple as that. The less, then you get less honor. It's, it's simple. Okay. Now, I can see you're excited about it. So God loves generosity. He's a generous God. He daily loads us with benefits. No good thing will the Lord withhold from him who walks uprightly. He makes the liberal soul fat. God delights in the prosperity of his servant. My prayer to God for you is that you might prosper and be in healthy. What do Christians do with those verses? If everybody tithed that loved Jesus, we wouldn't have a financial need ever. Anywhere, any church. But it's a sad part to show that I'm going to trust you to take me to heaven and escape hell, but I can't trust you with my wallet or my resources. That's really sick. If you can't trust him with your money, how can you trust him with your soul? That's a way bigger trust, I think, anyway. So God's generous. Okay, you. okay come on. It's true. Cain shuts himself off from that. Cain sees sees this joy in Abel, and it just grates on him. It's interesting. Cain gets angry, not at himself. He should have said, come on, Cain, wake up, wake up, get a grip. You can do better than this. He gets mad at his brother Abel, not even God. He thinks if Abel wasn't around, I wouldn't be feeling this pain, this shame, this guilt. So there's comparison at the very beginning of the Bible. So God comes along and he speaks to Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you'll do what I told you, if you do what's right, won't your offering be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must learn to master it. That's in verse 6 and 7 of Genesis 4. It's a fascinating story. God kind of plays therapist to Cain. Now, there were no therapists back in those days, so God was his therapist, you know. He asked him, Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, Sparky, won't you be accepted? Simple. But Cain will not respond to any of these questions. And what happens for Cain is he dehumanizes his brother and doesn't see him anymore as his brother. He sees him as a problem. And the real question God is posing, and a really good one for you and me, when we start comparing ourselves is, what is it I really, really want? Now here's the next verse. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Now there's a world of hurt and sin in that light. For the first time, Cain has to deceive his brother. He has to teach his face, the tone of his voice, and his body language to deceive his brother. So while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And this theme of deception and comparison runs all through the human race. Neil Plantings wrote a book, and he tells the story of two young women in Iowa, Cindy and Sonia. They're both beautiful women. They would sometimes compete in beauty pageants. So Cindy was Miss Harvest Queen, Sonia was Miss Homecoming Queen, and they both liked the same guy, a guy named Jim. Jim ultimately rejected Cindy, married Sonia, and it killed Cindy. She couldn't stand to think of her rival getting what she wanted and being happy. So she took a leather belt and strangled the Homecoming Queen, and the whole town was devastated. If you think back a year or two ago or three, moms have got involved and hired a hit man to kill a cheerleader so their daughter could become a cheerleader, right? Y'all, you a sick mama. To, my kid didn't make cheerleaders. Big deal. And the beat goes on. So what? But for some in the comparison, it means everything. Their identity is locked up in it. Okay. Okay. You're not sure, are you? (laughs) All through the human race, all through the Bible, this toxicity is present. How come you have what I want? How come I can't have what you have? So, two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, are estranged from each other. Then the next generation comes along, two more brothers, Jacob and Esau. They get estranged from each other. And this is what the text says about them Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man staying in the shelter of the tents. Isaac, the father, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. Esau could throw the football further. But Rebekah, the mom, loved Jacob. He was good at macrame. I just made that up. That's in Genesis 25, but macrame is not, okay? It's parents comparing their kids. Bad, showing favor to one over the other. Really bad parenting here. And parents will do this weird kind of a thing. Oh, he's the athletic one. He's the outdoors one. He's the indoors one. Now, why would I craft one of my kids' identity based on what their brother or sister happened to be like? See, your children are not alike. They're not supposed to be alike. We're all different. We're diverse. Different DNA, different fingerprints. Even though we came through the same body, uh, our our kids are geared for something different. Never come. Why can't you make A's like your sister in math? That's not going to be their future. But maybe they're great in art or in in something else, in creativity. Push them in the area of their strength, not their weakness or not their sibling's strength. You can't imitate somebody's strength if you don't have it. And parents go nuts. Well, if you're not any good in math, I'm going to give you more math. Oh, goody. Goody. And now you're just going to kill my self-worth instead of saying, let's find out what you are good at and do more of that. That's how you soar with your strength. Okay. So don't do that. Then there's Joseph and his brothers. Envy and rivalry here. He got a coat from Saks and I got one from uh, Walmart. Yeah. Or new but used or whatever I got. And they're mad and they're jealous. Daddy seems to be playing favorites again. So there's envy and jealousy and rivalry all through Scripture. Another story involves Israel's first king, Saul. Here's another comparison. Saul stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. He was the king. He names David to be a warrior and general for him. They go out to battle. The battle's going really, really good. And here's what happened next. The women came out of all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry at this refrain. It galled him. 1 Samuel chapter 18. (laughs) Why did it gall him? Well, I'm thinking just as Rick. For one thing, it's a really stupid song. The lyrics are really bad. And they probably sang it to the tune of It's a Small World after all. Saul has slain his thousands after all. David has slain his tens of thousands after all. And they keep repeating this all the way through over and over. Sing it again. Sing it again. And they just keep on going. That would drive anybody crazy listening to that dumb song. But that's really not the reason it galled Saul. Here's why it did. Saul says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but my kingdom? And from that time on it says Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Compare. His church is bigger than mine. He's on more TV stations than me. They live in a gated community and we don't, blah, blah, blah. Comparisons that way. My neighbor drives a Tesla and I don't. <laughs> I'm looking over at Dr. Bob anyway. It's a- as I watched that blue Tesla drive in with no petrol, I liked that. One day, I remember during the gas crisis, fighting to get in line down here to get some gas, and I remember Bob just went, drive right on by, <laughs> go home and plug in. And I thought, one day, one day, I'm going to achieve nirvana. I'm going to get a Tesla. <laughs> I do think about that, by the way. That, that, that is true. But when I start to get jealous, I look at you differently. I don't see my brother. I don't see somebody I love. I just see the person who creates pain in me. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm afraid. What more could he get but my kingdom? See, something precious is at risk, he thinks. But in the kingdom of God with Jesus, nothing precious is ever at risk. But where there's comparison and envy, you're always going to find fear. Why are you so angry, Saul? I'm offended. They've credited David with more people than me. Are you kidding me? Saul, who's they? Well, everyone. Oh, Saul, what do you care what everybody thinks? You're the king. You're the man. David works for you. If he wins, you win. Saul is so consumed with envy that eventually he tries to kill David. And that's often the way it works in life. The very thing Saul feared most, the loss of his kingdom, is what ends up happening probably because of the grasping, clutching, jealous, comparative way that he lived. It will kill you it does all the time but there's a better way another way so we go over to the New Testament and now we look at another guy there was a man sent from God and his name was John this is John the Baptist he's got a message repent for the kingdom of God is at hand then one day John sees Jesus he says to the people who are following him behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world then the people began going to Jesus church (laughs) then the strangest thing happens Some of John's disciples came and said, Rabbi, come here. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, he's baptizing. Everybody's going to his church. Everybody's on his podcast. Everybody's watching him online. That's in John 3, verse 26. It's very interesting. John has disciples. Jesus has disciples. John is called Rabbi. Jesus is called Rabbi. John baptizes people. And now Jesus' followers are baptizing people. So John's disciples say, hey, John, remember? We used to be number one. We were the most prominent. Everybody was coming to see us. Now Jesus, the guy you baptized, is becoming more popular than you are, and everybody's going to see him. The more people who go to see you, then the more important you must be. Well, we're your disciples. If you're becoming less important, we're going to be less important. And we don't like it. So you better do something, John, to recapture the market share. This is real life right there. And that comparison deal goes on even in spiritual arenas. Even in ministry, it goes on everywhere. A long time ago when I was just starting out in church, I was at a pastor's conference. And during one of the breaks, there was a little group of three of us with coffee just talking. Don't know them. We were all pastors, and one of them said to the other one, how's your church going? Now, for those of you that don't know, that's pastor talk for how many people go to your church? Or how important are you? Well, I get status if I hang out with you, or I need to go have coffee with someone else. So the first guy is like, well, a 1,000 people, something like that. How's your church? The second guy said 1,200 people. Now, I knew what was coming next. We were running about 250. My immediate thought was, I'm going to say we're like 300 people because that'll sound much more impressive than 250 people. (laughs) Then you know how your mind works in a moment like that. And I thought to myself, oh, Ricky, really, really? I don't know these guys. I'm never going to see them again. Do I want to give up my integrity for the sake and status of 50 lousy people? So I said, we run about 2,000. (laughs) I figured if I'm going to sacrifice my integrity, I'm going to make it worthwhile. Yeah. I, <laughs> I remember a denomination of old churches years ago, larger than other churches in their denomination, and in that group, they call themselves the tall steeple churches. Anybody notice not a lot of steeples being built in the U.S. these days? It'd be hard to, com- to, to combine grandiosity and irrelevance uh, better in a single phrase. Tall steeple, yeah. John the Baptist's disciples say, "We used to be a tall steeple ministry. Now everybody's going to him." And John's response is unbelievable. This is kingdom. He says to this, John replied, "A person can receive only what's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him." The bride belongs to the bridegroom, and that ain't me. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. That's in John chapter 3, verse 26. Now, that's got kingdom all over it. You know, don't worry about who's in the eagles, the robins, and the pigeons. He says, I know who I am, and that begins with who I'm not. I'm not Messiah. Messiah it's not me. Now, that's a good place to start for everybody. You know, you might want to turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not Messiah. And if they look strange, you're not Messiah either. Let them know. See, it's good to know what you're not, whatever would be the most helpful. Then John talks about who he is. And he uses this remarkable picture every Hebrew was familiar with. He said, I told you I'm not the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the groom. Now, that's like the best man in our wedding. He's used imagery here from a Hebrew wedding. There would be a character who had an official role like the best man in our weddings. He would provide a lot of the ceremonial function that a best man would do. But his final task was to stand in front of the bridal tent at night, where the bride would be inside at the end of the day's parties. He would stand guard so nobody could get to the bride until bridegroom came. It'd be dark, so he would hear the sound of the groom's voice, and when he heard the groom uh, and his voice, that was his final task, was step aside so the groom could go in to receive his bride. Then he would have the joy of knowing, I did my job. I helped my friend, and now the groom and the bride are together." John said, guys, that's me. I'm not the groom. The bride belongs to him. The church belongs to Jesus. She's not mine. The people aren't mine. If I try to grab for the joy that belongs to him, I won't get joy, and I'll lose the joy I have. So he says, don't you think when other people are going to Jesus instead of me that it's causing me to get unhappy or lose my joy? My joy is fulfilled. I'm the friend of the groom. Can't get better than that. And I'm so glad the groom is here. And by the way, as a church, we want to reach every single person for Jesus Christ that we can. But not only that, somebody was talking to me about churches, other churches, and about the competition in town. But other churches, as I remind them, are not our competition. Thank God for every church in San Antonio that preaches Jesus. The more God breathes life into the church, whatever the church, wherever the church, the better it is. It's a win-win deal. Then John has this amazing statement. He must get greater. I've got to become lesser. In other words, my life is not centered in me. That's a really important thing to understand about the way life works. The more my ego is at the center of my life purposes, the more miserable I'll be. The more God is at the center of my life, it's a strange paradox, the greater my life, the bigger my world. So I've got to grow less. He must grow greater. And that's life in the kingdom. I saw a movie once about this amazing court musician by the name of Saleri. He's very gifted. He's very competent. But he recognizes Mozart is a genius. Mozart is this obnoxious, God always does that, doesn't he? He will just choose who you don't like. You're smarter. You're better. You're more spiritual. You know more scripture. La, 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 la. And God doesn't choose you. He chooses the weak and the foolish to confound the smart aleck. That's scripture yeah he does he will use people you don't like and he doesn't care that you don't like it life in the kingdom suck it up that's in the greek all right mozart is this obnoxious character and it grates on him that god made mozart the genius and not him he's convinced god's done him wrong because he can't be happy while mozart's in the world so this is what he says to god from now on we're enemies you and me Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and gave me the reward, only the ability to recognize the incarnation, because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. That's what he said. The reality is Saliri had amazing gifts that put him in the top one-tenth of one percent, an amazing privilege. He also could have been given the gift of recognizing the greatness in Mozart and said, what a great thing to live in a world where there's a Mozart and have the whole world listen and love that music. But all he could see was, I'm not Mozart. God has done me wrong. The idea that he might find joy in humbling himself and being able to applaud the greatness of somebody else never even occurred to him. But doesn't the Bible say rejoice with those who rejoice? Yeah, somebody got a new house, a new car, a new raise, a new Tesla. Thank God. <laughs> Bob's gonna write me off as a neighbor now. Okay, till I get one. Okay. <laughs> a- anyway, the, I lost my train of thought. Where was I? There, I was. Uh, well, the the end of the movies is is the climax and it's pretty chilling. This guy's nuts, and if you ever see it. Salari's with a priest he's making this accusation against God he's convinced in his mind that it's unanswerable He's right God's done him wrong. So he says to the priest you are a mediocrity, but don't worry I am your champion. I am the patron saint of mediocrities Then he's wheeled out of this insane asylum and he says I absolve you of your mediocrity He lost his mind Out of his jealousy. See we live in this crazy world. I have to compare myself. I have to be in the Eagles So how do I live another way? Here's a couple of questions to take home. One is, who am I comparing myself to? Now, you may be in the building business. You may be medical, maybe the legal business, maybe secretarial, maybe the ministry, uh, maybe the restaurant or retail business. And usually comparisons are in the same field, usually. See, I'm inviting you to think about that one. I probably wouldn't compare myself financially to Bill Gates or somebody like that, but it'll be a person down the street, who you work with, the area or career you're in, somebody close by. And just be real honest about it. Ask, ask those questions that God asked of Cain. Why am I angry about this? What is it I really want? Who, who would my best self be? Then ask, what's the joy God has for me? What are the gifts God's given to me? What's the task God has assigned to me? I'll give you a little insight here. I was with a very famous minister, uh, whose huge national outreach, who said to me, behind stage in a green room one time, I wasn't in his league. I wish I was, but I wasn't. But he said, "You changed my life. You started a new beginning in me and made me appreciate what gift I had." And blah blah. blah. And I went on to, th- uh, to say, uh, "Me? And I'm thinking, I did." I'm thinking, I'm nobody. I'm thinking, you're everybody. How come I can't have a piece of that? And then he says, no, God used you where you are like you are to change me. Okay, all right. That won't get you a Tesla, but it's okay. It's just a little insight that, you know, bloom where you're planted. Be who God made you to be and be the best you you can be. I'm sorry you're not born in this family or in that class or with these resources or with those teeth or this hair, Philip De La Rosa, or with this body. But you are what you are. God, it's to say, God, you made a mistake when you made me. He did not make a mistake. I have to believe I'm exactly who I ought to be, where I ought to be, doing what I ought to be in this generation. God could have made anybody. He could have put Billy Graham in this generation, but he didn't. He put you in it. He could have put any former hero, they wouldn't have made it. You are the right person at the right time, and I honestly believe that. I really do believe it. So what's the task God has assigned you? God hasn't asked me to be T.D. Jakes or Billy Graham. I don't have to be Mozart or David or Saul. I just got to be me. Oh, sorry, isn't there a song? I got to be me. No, okay, okay. God is calling you to be you. Don't be a copy. You're an original. Be the best you you can be. There's there's joy in loving the people around you, doing the things God called you to do, yeah, and giving the gifts God's called you to give and stretching the gifts God's given you to stretch. There's joy in that. Even if you want a little extra credit work, take that person you're most prone to envy to compare yourself to and pray God would bless their socks off. Say, God, would you let that person soar would you unleash their gifts in an unprecedented way then of course you can't do it your own power your own strength we're leaning on the holy spirit and the kingdom of god i ask jesus please help me do this every time i'm tempted to compare myself to somebody else that becomes a little prompting for prayer for that person that i can't be like that i can't have what they have or do what they do and by the way jesus knows all about envy you might have noticed this, but maybe not. There's a tiny little phrase in the story of Jesus. Paul saw, excuse me, Pilate saw that it was out of envy the chief priests delivered Jesus into his hands. Envy. The more people are going to him than us. He's breaking all these legal rules we set out. He's talking to people we don't like. He's, and they were mad he was having such fame and prominence that they said, let's kill him. An innocent man for the guilty. Envy. Everybody's going to him. That means they're not coming to us, the Pharisee says. They're not cheering us on. We've got to kill that guy. Uh, Want to go out to the field, Jesus? Yeah. It's a story of the human race. Here's the last little vignette. It's kind of funny. It's at the very end. I'll close with this one. Jesus is restoring Peter who left the ministry. You might remember after he swung at the priest's head, missed, and got his ear. His servant cut it off. I love Pete because that gives me hope for myself. He's impulsive, foot-in-the-mouth disease. Oh, Peter. Been walking with Jesus three years. He still cusses. He's probably had a Bud Light. I don't know. I don't know. He, He went back fishing. Just terrible. Things didn't work out like he had planned, you know. Peter is so human. He's messed up every way. And Jesus is recommissioning him. And he says to him three times, feed my sheep, because he denied Jesus three times. And this is at the very end. He tells Peter the kind of death he's going to die. I don't think you and I would want to know. I wouldn't. But he's going to tell Peter how he's going to die. And it's going to be brutal. It's hard. But he's going to glorify God with it. And there's eternity of joy that's going to lie in front of him when it happens. And Jesus tells Peter about it. Then this weird things happen. Peter sees John walking by. Not John the Baptist, he's already dead, but John the Beloved. And when Peter saw him, he says, Lord, what about him? It'd be like Jesus talking to me about how I'm going to die. And Nate, Nate walks by, and I, Lord, what about him? What's going to happen to him? How do I compare with him? Is he going to get his too? And there's a little dynamic going on with Peter and John that you have to know about. John's in the gospel called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter's not. At the Last Supper, John's reclining next to Jesus' breast at the table of honor. At the resurrection, John and Peter race each other to the tomb. Somebody evidently kept track of it. John got there first. They're having a foot race. Who can make it to the tomb of the resurrected Jesus first? John outruns Peter. After the resurrection, when they're going to go out fishing, this figure comes walking on the water in a storm, and it's John who says to Peter, it's the Lord. In other words Peter doesn't recognize who he is John recognizes and says to Peter hey Pete I know who that is over and over John 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 Peter sees him after being told this Lord what about him what about John it's always John isn't it he's your favorite isn't it he's the disciple you love isn't it if you're so crazy about John why don't you make him Pope and Jesus answered if I want John to remain alive until I return what is that to you? It's none of your business. If you keep your eyes on John, you'll be miserable. If you keep your eyes on me, you'll be fulfilled. There's no life, only death in dealing with this constant whining, how come I can't have what you have? Be what you are, folks. To follow Jesus, that's life. And that's how you stop comparing. We are not the same. We are not we're equal in value before God, but we're not equal in gifting and talent and opportunity for crying out loud. Be grateful for what you have. Be thankful for what he's given you. And if he's given you a lot, don't look down at others and be patronizing and arrogant and and condemning and exalt yourself. It makes God want to throw up. Be very grateful for what he's put in your hands. Very, very grateful. So I may not be the brightest, the biggest, the most popular, the youngest, whatever, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what I have. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for opportunity. I'm grateful for my friends. I'm grateful for what I do have. My my wife loves me. My kids love me. Nate, you love me? (laughs) What about him, Lord? right. For more information on Summit Christian Center, Visit SummitSA.com.